Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. Nikki Sahutska, the Associate Director for Research Initiation and Enablement in the Engineering Education Transformations Institute, or EETI, in the College of Engineering at the University of Georgia. Nikki's research is innovative and highly interdisciplinary. Today, I've asked her to tell us about some new research that delves into how stories shape and reflect engineering cultures and norms and values. Nikki, welcome to Research Briefs. I'm, I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you, Ruth. I'm so happy to be here. To start off, can you tell us about your own story, your pathway into engineering education research? Yeah, sure. Um, well, if you told me 25 years ago when I was um, studying to be an environmental engineer that um, in 2018 I'd be in the United States studying engineering education research, I would certainly never have believed you. <laughs> um, so when I was studying to be an environmental engineer, the concept of graduate studies, it just had never occurred to me. And, um, you know, because I was really passionate about environmental issues uh, and I wanted to get out there and work and I wanted to change the world. And, um, and so that's what I did, or at least I did the working thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went out and I worked for an international consulting firm called URS, started off in Sweden and then, uh, well, started off in Brisbane actually, and then went to Sweden and, uh, and worked for about two years and I, and I really loved it. It was really exciting. I got to work on a whole bunch of different projects and meet lots of different people. But um, as I kept working, um, two things happened. Um, the first was that all of the travel and all of the new projects all the time started to get a little bit old. And, um, and I started feeling like I wanted to really sink my teeth into something. I just sort of moving from one project to the other, every time something got interesting, I felt like I had to move on. Um, and then the other thing that happened is that uh, I noticed that I felt really prepared for the technical side of my job. Um, but there were a lot of social things happening that I felt like I just didn't have um, frameworks to understand. Um, so stuff like, so the work that I did was uh, a lot in soil and groundwater management. Um, and so I was drilling, uh, taking a lot of soil samples, drilling a lot of um, wells and uh, so much social, so many social factors went into how many wells we drilled and how many soil samples we took. And there was so much sort of legislation, past history of companies. Um, and then, you know, the degree to which the companies we were working for how sustainable they wanted to be was also related to their motivation, beliefs, values, all these sorts of things. And, um, and so I felt like I wanted to do something social and and learn more about social theories, but I still didn't consider a PhD. Um, and then one day when I was working on a, a site, um, at Uppsala, which is, uh, uh, a bit North of, of the capital of Sweden, Stockholm, 
I was really cold and I think I was complaining about my work and, and, uh, and one of my colleagues said to me, uh, in an, she was actually American. She, we were working for an American company and, and so she had come over and she said to me, oh, you're so smart. You should do graduate studies. And, and, and I, and I just remember thinking, huh, that's okay. That's a thing. Well, maybe I should consider graduate studies and that really planted a seed. And so, um, and so I ended up quitting my job and going back to Australia and investigating this whole PhD thing. And, uh, and then one thing led to another and I found myself working with Dr. Lydia Kavanagh and Leslie Jolly. Um, and my PhD topic still had nothing to do with engineering education. Uh, it was, um, about the socio-technical response to a drought that we were having in Southeast Queensland, which is where I was living at the time. And, um, and I did that PhD as part of a research center called the Catalyst Research Center that was headed up at the time um, by David Radcliffe. And I was working with a whole bunch of other students. And the thing that um, we all had in common is that we had all studied engineering as our undergraduate degrees. And we were all using some kind of method of social inquiry to look at some aspect of, of engineering practice or engineering education. And, uh, and these methods of social inquiry really resonated with me. I felt like they filled that gap that I felt uh, when I was working, you know, that lack of social frameworks. Um, and so with my topic of looking at the drought, um, these social theories really helped me think about how socio-technical systems work and how to change them. And, uh, and then partway through my PhD, sort of... Um, life and love took over and I, suddenly I found myself in the United States here at the University of Georgia um, where I finished my PhD and then uh, slowly realized that uh, it rains quite a lot in Georgia. <laughs> in fact, it's raining right now. It has rained for the entire last week. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, maybe this is not the best place to continue my research on drought and urban water management. But my methods of social inquiry that I had, had learned during my PhD, they were really transferable to engineering education. Mm -hmm. And I started also to get really excited about the possibility of using or working in education as a way to achieve the kinds of sort of changes to environmental systems, social systems that, that I wanted to achieve. And, and the, the engineering education community was really welcoming. And so, um, and so I, I gradually made the transition and I guess here I am. It is amazing, isn't it? How, when we um, look back, there could be these times when we said, I would never ever a million years imagine that I'd be here right now. It makes you wonder about the future and you know, what can we imagine our 25 years from now future, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, like I said, grad, both graduate studies and the United States, neither of those things had ever entered my mind. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. crazy that I'm here now. Yeah. Well, we're glad you are. Oh, thank you. So uh, when I introduced you, I mentioned that your research looks at how stories both reflect and shape engineering culture. Can you tell us how you came to do this particular kind of research? Mm -hmm. so, um, so this research project has really been many years in the making, and I've really loved it because it's such a nice 
example of how research projects sort of develop and emerge. Um, and so how, okay, how did I come to do it? Um, well, I guess when you read research studies in journal articles, they all come really nicely packaged. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so maybe I'll tell you more the emergent development story. Yeah, because it's, it's never that neat, is it? <laughs> no, not at all, although I hope it will sound neat in the, in the paper. Um, yeah, so I guess like most research, this, became, this, this project started with an idea, um, sort of a sense of maybe better described as a sense of discomfort or a sense of dissonance. Um, and that was in response to when I first read the uh, National Academy of Engineering's report, Changing the Conversation, I think it must have been back in 2010, and I was looking over those um, messages that they were suggesting as a way to change the conversation about engineering and attract more and more diverse people in the field. And when I was reading those messages, um, I thought they were really great and aspirational, but they didn't really reflect my experiences of being an engineering student um, and, and, and then at the time teaching engineers and, and being in a, in, a, in a college of engineering, I guess, in, in an engineering education culture. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I became really interested in this idea that, you know, if, if there's an underlying assumption by the National Academy of Engineering that these messages can change people's decisions, I started to wonder, okay, well, what messages are actually in, out there in the world, you know, in the public dis discourse, and, and, uh, and what are the implications of those current messages for people making decisions about, about coming into engineering or not? And then later on as the project developed, we folded in that culture piece. So, so, you know, if we can know what messages or stories are actually told about engineering, how do those messages um, shape and reflect our, our culture? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, were you going to say something? Yeah. So there's a, a, a point I know you're going to bring out at some point, you mm -hmm. of both reflecting and shaping at the same time. Do you want to say that here or do you want to leave that for later? Um, maybe I'll leave that for later. Maybe I'll speak a little bit more about where we went from there and then that can come in okay. later. Okay. Um, okay, so, so the way that we started uh, looking at how engineering is... Uh, portrayed in the public discourse was by looking at um, the American Society for Engineering Education's First Bell newsletter. Do you get those every um, day? I know people do. I do not. I myself do not, but I, I know a lot of people do. Okay. So they're a, um, they're, uh, they seemed at the time to be a really great source, um, you know, pre-sorted source of, of articles that discussed engineering uh, and STEM fields in the mass media. Mm -hmm. so, so we looked at, um, at a year's worth of those and uh, initially we used grounded theory as a method to look at them. Mm -hmm. um, and we did that because we didn't really know what we were going to find. And, and so um, we, we wanted to let the 
you know, the data really speak to us. And, uh, and as we were doing this analysis, we saw some really interesting things. Um, and one was there was some sort of conflicts in what we were reading about how engineering is portrayed. So a lot of the articles spoke about math being, uh, about engineering being really math and science based, mm-hmm. which was interesting because that was uh, one of the recommendations that the National Academy of Engineering made um, about something not to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there were sort of some articles, but really very few, but some articles were certainly saying that engineering is more than math and science based. Uh, and then there were these other tensions. Um, a lot of the articles were speaking about engineering being a profession in crisis and not enough people are coming to the field. And then there were these other articles that were talking about um, uh, how people with engineering degrees were having difficulties getting a job. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the undergraduate student that we were working with at the time, um, she uh, was about to graduate and she was having difficulties getting a job. So here mm-hmm. she was reading all these articles about how everyone should come to engineering because it's a profession in crisis. And here she was with her, you know, peers having difficulties getting a job. Yeah. So that, so that was, um, and what, what year was this Nikki, just to have people be able to put it in a, in kind of an economic framework with different recessions and things, what year did you collect the data? Yeah, that's a good question. So we collected it from the middle of 2011 until mm. the until the middle of 2012. Okay. So um so there was certainly some echoes left from from the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and I think I think that certainly did factor in somewhat into the articles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still not at the very depth of all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it. I think if we had looked a few years a few years earlier, there would have been a lot more mention of recession. At, at this time, it was more, you know, as we work through the recovery was mentioned mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was, was certainly mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so at this point, we had these really detailed hierarchical trees with codes and subcodes and uh and uh and just in the same way that in alice Pauley's work she has spoken about her coming to narrative methods because she realized or, or noticed that breaking things down into codes sort of took away some of the coherency mm-hmm. some of the meaning of what she was doing well we noticed um uh that as well uh uh, or, or it more came out that when we started looking across the various branches of the trees and tying some of our categories together, um, we felt like we had more coherence in the data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that took us away from looking for messages that were comparable to the National Academy of Engineering's messages and prompted us to start looking for, okay, well, what are stories with beginnings, middles, ends, you know, mm-hmm. problems, characters, challenges, solutions, endings. Uh, and so we started to look at the data through that lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
And at this point, another thing that we did, so, so before uh, we got to that insight about looking for not just messages, stories, we didn't have any theories in this study or any other methodology other than grounded theory, which we knew would just be an exploratory. Right, right. Um, and so at this point, we started to bring in some theories that we thought would be helpful. And so we looked, um, because we were looking at the media, we looked into media studies and found these really interesting theories around agenda setting. Mm. So this idea of, you know, what does the public discourse or the, or the mass media choose to talk about? Right. And, and how that can have an impact on, on people's opinions and also framing. So not just what um, the mass media talks about, but also... You know, how they how they talk about it mm-hmm. uh, and so um, and so we we took those two theories and, and that uh, helped us decide okay well you know maybe there are some stories that uh, are being uh, agenda set or are being you know emphasized more than others and there certainly seem to be some sort of problem definitions and and uh, um, sort of moral spins and, and uh, solutions that were being emphasised more than others. Um, and so that's when we, uh, I, I read this really great and very interesting paper that used a, a methodology that we ended up um, using in our study, which was called narrative policy analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and, and so we started to, to, to use that. I feel like I've been talking a lot. Maybe I'll give you a chance to say something. No, no. I, I really want you to talk about the narrative policy analysis because I had not heard about that before until I was looking at your papers. And it, it's just a really fascinating idea. Of, of uh, I'd like you to tell people a little bit about what it is. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so narrative policy analysis is a really fascinating research methodology. And um, basically the core of it is this idea that with really complex, uncertain and polarized problems or or policy issues, um, it's really hard to find hard sets of facts and evidence that can guide policy. Um, And so the idea is that with these kinds of complex, uncertain, polarized policy issues, uh, it can be really helpful to find the stories that we tell ourselves about our problems um, because it's actually more than the facts and the hard evidence. It's the stories that inform how we go about trying to solve these these issues. And they, they really, the stories really start to kind of work into our brains and our, our beliefs, I think, often are shaped by these stories, don't, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are a lot of people, um, a lot of researchers who work with stories or work with narratives who emphasize this idea that we um, engage with the world and naturally make sense of the world through stories. And so, yeah, when someone tells us a a story that resonates with our own beliefs, we're more likely to um, accept that and act on that than someone throwing a whole bunch of facts at us Mm -hmm. or or a whole bunch of evidence or or counter evidence. Yeah, and and like you said, um, these 
stories are sometimes so implicit that we don't even notice that where our actions are based on them or could mm-hmm. or can be influenced by them. And so we thought that if we could identify these stories, then we could really, um, you know, hold them up. And, and as a community, we would have a chance to look at them and say, hmm, well, we like these stories or we agree with these stories or we don't. Because if we, if we can't see them really clearly, then it's hard to, it's hard to change, make any changes. Right. Right. So, um, so the person who developed this, uh, research approach, narrative policy analysis, um, Emery wrote, he talks about three kinds of stories and one of them, um, so the first type of story is dominant stories and they're the stories that he just says they function to reduce the complexity, uncertainty and polarization. So they're the ones that um, policy responses, solutions are designed according to. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about non-stories, which I think are totally fascinating. And um, so the dominant stories are stories in the sense that they have a beginning, a middle and an end. So they're, you know, they offer a coherent, narrative explanation of whatever problem we're talking about. Um, And then non-stories he describes as critiques of dominant stories. Mm -hmm. And so, and and he says that non-stories are really interesting because if you critique a dominant story, so if you try and throw some facts at it, um, he says that because non-stories aren't full stories in and of themselves, so they don't have beginnings, middles and ends, they don't offer a, um, a coherent story that people can sort of sign up to and then develop an alternative set of solutions according to. So instead, he says that when you critique a dominant story, what you're actually doing is strengthening the dominant story because you're increasing the complexity, increasing the uncertainty, and so people latch onto them even more. Intriguing. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> um, and so instead, he suggests that if you want to change how people solve or approach problems, solve problems, then what you need to do is develop counter stories. Mm-hmm. So, so these are full, alternative, compelling explanations that are different from the dominant stories and that point to different ways of um, moving forward. Do, could you, do you have kind of at the tip of your tongue one example of a dominant story and a non-story and a counter story that you found that you could share? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we identified... Um, five dominant stories um, but they, and, and, and we define them as having a beginning, a middle and an end. And the really interesting thing that we observed is that all of the dominant stories had the same beginning. So they had the same call to action, the same problem definition. And that was this idea that, um, you know, there's a chronic shortage of engineers and that this chronic shortage of engineers really threatens the United States ability to compete with uh, China, to compete with India, and uh, it really puts them at risk of, of, of their survival in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's this really sort of 
very dramatic um, story around a, you know a, a lack of people coming and 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 how that can have international implications. I bet every one of our listeners is shaking their head saying, I have heard that story a million times. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story. I have written that story. Uh, yes, I yes. It's at the beginning of my grant proposal. It's the beginning of my paper. It's, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah very, yeah, very, very common, but does not have to be that way. Okay, so, um, so, th- so that was the beginning of the story. And then I'll just tell you... Um, uh, okay, well, the first story was, um, I think listeners will also um, nod their heads at, this idea that, um, you know, it's a chronic shortage. We need to get more students excited about and proficient in math and science. Um, and then if we do that, more students will, enter en- will want to become engineers because, after all, you know, engineering is defined by math and science. Right. Um, and then the, the other four stories follow a, a, a similar sort of pattern. So the second story, you know, we need to expose more students to the hands-on side of engineering because engineering is about building things. Mm-hmm. Um, or we need to get people to understand what engineers do because, you know, engineers are really important. They make the, you know, stuff that makes the world go, that kind of, that kind of thing. So, so that's what some of the dominant stories look like, um, that we identified and let me see if I can find, I just wanted to give you a sense of what it looked like in the data. Okay. So this is, hold on a second. Okay. So this is one quote that illustrates the, um, the competitiveness uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. Okay. So it says, um, this is in the context of an article. So it's really about global competitiveness, but don't tell the students that. For them, Panic at Point, a week-long STEM camp, is a fun way for them to learn and get career information about math and science and STEM fields. Mm-hmm. So, so I just, when I read that quote, you know, it's really about global competitiveness, but we don't tell the students that. Um, I, I just thought that was a really yes. nice representation. Yes. Because we want to make it fun. Yeah, we, we want to make it fun, but we all know what the real problem is. Right, and, and right. really have to enter. Mm-hmm. So, so there were some examples of dominant stories. Um, and one example, well, we only identified one non-story. And that non-story was uh, this idea that, in fact, there isn't a shortage of engineers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we found quite a few articles that referenced um, all kinds of reports with a lot of data that made quite compelling arguments that there isn't a shortage of engineers. Um, but you know, what can you, what do you do with that? Right. Like throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, well, we're good. Um, it, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really help very, very much just that by itself. It, it doesn't make a story, but it was funny actually. Um, uh, I was at a ASE conference a couple of years ago and listening to a, a keynote speaker and, uh, and as he was speaking, I was sort of ticking off in my mind the dominant stories as he hit on them. Mm-hmm. And then partway through the, his presentation, he said, um, oh, 
And you know what? Some people, you know, they give me all these facts and all these figures, they do all these reports, and they say that there are enough engineers that we don't need anymore, that some engineers can't get a job. You know what I say? I say, I don't care. The world will be better with you and me. And I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. Yes, yes. Uh, and I did ask for the transcript for many years, uh, well, a few years afterwards um, of that keynote, but it never materialized. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was such a perfect representation that yes, as much as we as engineers think that we're about the science, we're about being objective, we are human. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, stories are, stories are powerful. Yes. Yes. Is there a counter story you found too? Any counter story examples? Well, um, so one of the challenges with counter stories is that quite often they drowned out by dominant stories mm. and so by their very nature they're, they're hard to find uh-huh. and so we found um, some some bits and pieces that could be constructed into a counter story um, and so there were a few articles that um, spoke about climate change or spoke about social inequity or ecological destruction uh, sort of framed the big problem that that engineers face in in, in different ways um, but quite often um, even these stories existed alongside this push for economic growth and international competitiveness mm-hmm. so it's almost mm-hmm. as if they had to be validated by being part of that story. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of um, what engineering is and therefore what we need to foster in students, there were a a few stories that uh, spoke about engineering being a, a, uh, a profession where people work with others and that collaboration is important. Um, but again, it, almost without exception that was alongside something like and it's about math and science or so that really we really found that by itself and then there were a few articles particularly ones that spoke about how to attract more women to engineering that spoke about the importance of of caring for other people Mm -hmm. and so um and so we think that as a community we could together construct other counter stories um, that might provide, um, might point us to different solution paths to to attracting you know different types of groups of people to engineering, and uh, and also getting back to your original question, um, work into this uh, this process of shaping and, and reflecting engineering cultures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what reaction have, I, I know this research is, is in its early phases and you had some uh, journal uh, conference papers and just preparing a journal article now, but what kinds of reactions have you been getting? Um, lots of different types of reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, so when... 
So a few years ago, um, we were working with an undergraduate student. He was doing um, working with us on the data analysis, and and he was a or is a first generation college student who's followed a non traditional pathway into engineering. And his reaction to the study was, "Huh, I hear these stories all the time." Mm-hmm. Um, at, and he was a freshman student uh, at, at that stage in the project, and so he. Um, conducted a study and an autoethnography where he reflected on the kinds of stories that that he was hearing and uh, and and one of those um, uh, instances that he reflected on was when one faculty member uh, from our college came to speak to his freshman class and this faculty member is really passionate about social justice issues environment environmental sustainability and so um, the student was really excited for this faculty member to come and speak to the class. But when this person came, all they spoke about was data and spreadsheets and, um, and uh, you know, data analysis methods and didn't mention any of that social or environmental passion that she clearly had or that they clearly had. And, um, and Michael wrote about this in the, in, in the conference article and then went and spoke to the professor. And the professor said, well, no, I was speaking to a, a class of freshman engineers, so of course I had to make it more about the math and science and the analysis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our student was like, well, you know, why? And he said, oh, well, and she said, oh, well, I didn't want to put people off. And he said, oh, well, you kind of, you know, missed an opportunity to, uh, you know, to excite me about these other sides of engineering. And so that was a really interesting reaction. And, and I continued having conversations with this professor and, and then um, um, they wrote me an email a, a couple of months later and said, oh, I just gave it another presentation and I was totally myself. I just let it all out there and it was so fantastic. And, and, uh, and so, so I, yeah, so I guess the reaction of the student was initially um, – one of resonance and the and of the professor this um sense that maybe these stories were you know in some way shaping what she thought was suitable to speak to 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 share with an engineering class right right so um so there are two reactions and more recently um so i shared so uh uh, the project team is in the process of preparing a journal article and we shared it with our, our research group. And this research group has um, a graduate student and five or six undergraduate students and some other faculty members. Um, and one of the students had a really strong reaction to the paper and, um, and said, oh, well, you know, if you change the story, then people who, the students who are there for the math and science and do want to earn a good salary, you know, you could risk losing the people that you already have. And, uh, and I was thinking, and we had a conversation about that. And I said, oh, well, I'm not suggesting that we, you know, ditch these other stories, just that we pay attention to telling a broader range of stories. And he said, yeah, but you don't want to lose the people you have if you, you know, if there aren't enough people in engineering. And so he really had a lot of his identity wrapped around that and, and felt right. quite, quite protective over the stories. Mm-hmm. And then I, sh- and then um, we shared the paper with someone else who, uh, or, or, or a colleague um, 
who was who's sort of more on the other side and would would like to see a lot more social justice um, in engineering education curricula. And, and this person thought that the paper, oh, our work, it could be damaging because it reaffirms these dominant stories. And so, um, so it seems that I've upset everyone. I upset people <laughs> who like the stories and people who don't like the stories. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the point we're trying to make is, or, or the purpose of the study now that we're this far through it is, is really to articulate these stories um, and articulate them in a rich way that's grounded in data uh, and then have an opportunity to look at them. Um, and, and almost once you see the stories, it's hard to unknow them. I mean, the amount of times, I can't count the amount of times where I've caught myself in class telling a story uh-huh. and then going, oh, hold on a second. Okay, well, it's not bad to tell this story, but let's make sure that I tell other ones as well. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the, if we can see what, what these stories are, how they do shape our efforts to recruit, retain students, and that if we told other stories, that might point us to other ways that we can um, address this apparent problem of a lack of interest in engineering and certain problem of, of underrepresentation in engineering. Fascinating. And that would be great. That, yes. Wow. No, this is just so interesting. So I, I ask all the podcast guests to end with this question because I'm hoping that as uh, people learn about different ways of thinking about the research and, and different methods that they'll um, – think about maybe doing some exploration themselves. So what advice would you have for people thinking about uh, venturing into new areas or trying new methods? What might they learn from you? Hmm. Well, I think that it's one thing they might learn is that it's okay not to know exactly where you're going at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And that um, uh, sometimes in my, in our research group, we joke about emergent research designs and say, it's really that you just don't know what you're doing. And, <laughs> but, but there's value in that. I mean, yes, you, sometimes you can't know what you're doing at the, at the start. So I guess being, yeah, being willing to step into a space and ask a question without knowing what theories or methodologies or those other formal parts will eventually make their way in. Um, and so with that, I guess being attuned to how um, theory and methodology fits with the data that you have, fits with, fits with what you're looking at and being willing to try on different theories and methodologies and then move on if they don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reading while widely. So I, I came across this narrative policy analysis repro- approach. Um, at the time I was teaching engineering economics and, and this um, approach was used in a article on um, ecological economics. And so I think that, reading outside of engineering education is a really rich and rewarding experience that none of us have time to do. But 
um, yeah, but that's that. Yeah, that's fun. Um, I guess I'm someone who is fairly problem led in my work. So I, I, I like trying new methodologies. Um, but I think there's also value in sticking with one methodology and learning that really, really, really deeply. Right. And so, um, and so I think maybe thinking about what kind of a researcher you are, if you're someone that wants to really dig deep into one methodology or be more problem led. And, and if you know, that might, you know, that might help you decide which step to take. Right. Right. Well, I know I am going to read up on the narrative policy analysis, definitely, because it's it's really fascinating. And um, what I would like to do on um, the website where we have this linked and, and the transcript will be linked is also uh, put the citation to the conference paper so that people can can look at that as well. And we'll we'll wait for your journal article. And read that with, you know, read that with interest. Well, thank you. So, Nikki, any last thing you would like to say? Um, Well, I think it's great that you're doing these podcasts. I've really loved listening, listening to the ones that you've done. And I can't wait to listen to the one that you you did with James just recently. So thank you for this service to the community. Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. And thank you so much, Nikki. Again, I will be uh, looking with interest for your journal article. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.